I've just been reading a, um, okay, I don't know, you might, some of this might lower your opinions of me, some of you, but I have just been not actually reading, but listening to Spare, which is, um, gosh, his name just went out of my head for a second, Prince Harry's uh, autobiography. So I, I started reading it, I got into it, and then I, I just, it just got a bit too much, and then I stopped. And then I started again, and I'm slightly obsessively listening to it now with my knitting. It goes really well with knitting people, knitting people out there. And um, it's really interesting. He's trying to tell his own story, um, and he's trying to, um, I think he's trying to correct the record um, about various aspects of his life. I'm sure that's part of what he's doing anyway. And it's just... It's just interesting because the way people tell stories, they want to pull out particular things to make a point about themselves or about the way things have been happening. Now, the four, as you all, I'm sure you all know in this room and, and most of you watching online, that the stories about Jesus' life are told, are given to us in four Gospels, and they all take slightly different approaches. And John's Gospel has a very particular a very particular narrow focus, um, which he gives us in verse 31 of chapter 20. The whole gospel and everything in it is focused so that you, the reader, the hearer, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the, his, everything he writes about Jesus in the Gospel of John, which I invite you to write, to read, just in one go at some point in your lives, is aimed at this thing. So it's not, none of the, none of the Gospels are blow-by-blow blow forensic life stories of Jesus. None of, them, none of them are like that, and people didn't write that way back then anyway. But John's is different from the others in that he's very much about specific incidents at specific times that tell a particular, that, that paint a particular picture of Jesus that he wants us to understand. That he wants us to understand by the way he's put it together that Jesus is the Son of God, that we should believe in him and have life in his name. That's his whole aim. So this passage that we're looking at today is not just a random, oh, and then we'll throw in a bit about when he got up and washed his disciples' feet. There's something very specific going on here, and the timing of it is very specific, and everything about it is very precise. Now, this aim of John's about believing so that we may have life might seem a little bit contradictory if you've been sitting in church for the last few weeks because Chris has been picking up Jesus' invitation to come and die, which is not really an unexpected one you might expect from someone who's gathered such a huge following and has been doing the amazing things he's been doing. And he offers that invitation back in the, the last chapter we looked at, chapter 12, um, where in verse 24... He describes himself to some potential new followers as a kernel of wheat that's about to die. And in the next verse, he says that the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's all a little bit topsy-turvy and confusing, isn't it? John sets today's scene up in the first two verses of the chapter. If you'd like to follow along with me, um, I'm in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, which is on according to my notes, 874 of the Bibles in your pews. And in the, the, um, he tells us, first of, first of all, he gives us the time stamp so we know when this is, and it's before the Passover festival is celebrated. Now, John arranges this really careful, precise account of Jesus' life around Israel's sacred calendar, 
uh, religious celebrations because they're the things that actually mark Israel out. Of all of these, Passover is one of the biggest. It is Israel's birth story. It's the story of God's liberation of a community of slaves from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. So after 10 plagues, you may recall, Pharaoh finally released his slave labor force. The last and most deadly plague was the one where the firstborn of every household was put to death. In Exodus 12, on God's instructions, Moses has every Hebrew household sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood on the doorway of their home so that when the angel of death passes over, it will see that a life has already been given in that household. So any Jew listening to this gospel will pick up the reference to God's rescue of Israel in the timing of this event in Jesus' ministry. And then he tells us, still in this verse, it was time for Jesus to return to the Father. He knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. John's writing about the resurrection, but of course the people sitting at dinner with him don't know this. They're just living moment to moment. So really, John's giving us a bit of a summary of what's going to happen next. When he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Jesus knows his time is already up, was almost up. He knows he's about to go back to God and to take up his position at his right hand. And he knows as well from these opening verses that his betrayer is already in the room. So what he does next is a bit of a shock, isn't it? He gets up, he strips off his outer cloak, he ties a towel around his waist, he pulls water into a bowl and starts washing his disciples' feet. It's very real, very concrete, it's very everyday. We all know about, we've all seen, handled bowls, water, even feet. And it's a shocking thing for an esteemed rabbi, a sought-after teacher, a miracle worker, to get up and do. And Simon, in verse 6, you can always rely on Simon, can't you? says what everyone in the room is thinking. Are you, are you really going to wash my feet, Lord? You'll understand later, Jesus says. Jesus is deliberately overturning the expectations in the room. He is the preeminent one. They all know this now. He is their leader, and here he is, taking the lowest place. Simon Peter's having none of it. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Now imagine, imagine I had come out here with a bowl of water and some soap and just marched up to one of you and uh, started washing your feet. I did, I did think about doing that for a few seconds. It would, be, it would be awkward, right? It would be really, really awkward. I can see some nodding very hard nodding heads around the room. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples was as confronting for them as it still is for us. I heard a story, I was trying to, I was gathering stories in our family about things I could use as kind of things that would be as awkward as someone washing your feet. Uh, And I heard some quite interesting things, I'm just gonna share some with you. One's of a minister in a church um, where a few churches gather together Uh, every year and do things jointly and this particular year they decided they were going to have a foot washing together and uh, he was just so challenged by the idea of washing someone's feet that he chose to go and clean the toilets during the service instead 
Then there's the church where um, they do do foot washing, but the ladies keep their tights on. Uh, and then there's the church where they do do foot washing, but just, just the one foot. There's something very icky about this, even, even now, isn't there? Some, I, I was preaching this on Wednesday, and someone said that today the ickiness might be added to the fact that we're all going around in trainers and clothes shoes all the time, and like it's, like it's not so much the muck as the, you know, anyway, I probably shouldn't go there. What is Peter objecting to? Is it Jesus lowering himself to the level of, uh, level of a servant? Is it Jesus seeing how dirty Peter's feet are? Is it Jesus, his Lord and Master, handling his dirty feet? Is it all of the above? Whatever his objections are, Jesus stops him with another twist. Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me, Jesus says. If you want in, Peter, you have to let me do this. Of course Peter wants in. We all know Peter always wants in, doesn't he? He's totally committed so he pivots. No half measures with Peter. He is all or nothing. Not just my feet, Lord, but my hands and my head as well. But no, Jesus says, your feet are enough. You see, back then there were no street cleaners, no weekly wheelie bin connect collection, no doggy poo bags, no closed shoes. Feet were in unavoidable contact with all the accumulated muck on the ground. You could keep the rest of your body clean easily enough, but not so much your feet. Jesus describes them all as clean, except for the one who he knows will betray him. And later on, he explains this to us in chapter 15, where he speaks of his word, making people clean. So Jesus finishes his task, by which we can assume he means he washes all the disciples' feet, including the feet of the one who will betray him, but we'll talk about that more next week. And then he goes back to his place. He affirms that, yes, he is. He is their Lord and teacher. And he instructs them to do what he has done for them, for each other. What he did was a living parable of what he came to earth to do. The Lord came to his people stripped off his glory and got to work like a servant or a slave to make us clean. It's possibly this that Paul has in mind in his letter to the Philippians when he urges them to copy the humility of Christ. I'm reading here from Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. This is Christ who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As the, as the Passover angel of death moved over Egypt and spared those who were marked by the blood of the lamb, so the physical washing of the disciples' feet rep represented the cleansing that would come through faith in Jesus' sacrificial death. Jesus took time to wash each disciple's feet. I'm going on about this for a reason. I really am. It's not because I'm obsessed with feet or anything. But the more I thought about this, the more I thought about this. Long toes, hairy toes, short toes, stumpy toes, 
all individually handled, touched, cleaned, dried with a towel. An individual act of service for each person. As a demonstration of Jesus' task on earth, it showed the specific and personal nature of his sacrifice and his self-giving. For each of his disciples and for each person who believes. So let me ask, have you received Jesus' self-giving sacrifice as a personal, individual and specific act for you? Have you let him wash your feet? Do you look at the cross from an admiring distance, but really would prefer him not to touch your feet, thanks? All your particular issues, your secret sin, your addiction, your pain, your rage, your bitterness, your unforgiveness, your shame, then let me refer you to verse 8, where Jesus tells Peter that without allowing him near enough, you will miss out on what he has for you, for what he wants to do for you, for what he came to do for you. Jesus can be trusted with your mess. He is utterly trustworthy. We know this better than the disciples whose feet he was washing at the time, don't we? Because he rose from the dead. As John tells us in verse 2, he loved his disciples all the way to the end. He loved them completely. Maybe you have let Jesus wash your feet. You delight in his forgiveness and his self-giving love for you. But you struggle to serve others. Jesus turns his disciples towards each other as he prepares them for his departure. We are to wash each other's feet. Some scholars even believe this instruction has the force of a sacrament like communion or baptism. It wasn't a suggestion, it was a commandment, it was an instruction. Maybe that's why we end up with people washing one foot or washing people's feet through tights, or whatever other nonsense we come up with. But maybe that's not quite what Jesus meant. If we believe that Jesus is God's only son, as we say in the words of the creed, as we just said this morning, he has made us clean by physically giving his own flesh and blood for us. But we do pick up stuff as we move through the world. Maybe not animal dung, we hope or dust, but other things that cling to us, worldly perspectives and attitudes, desires for things outside God's kingdom, the toys this world offers. We pick these up in the world, we tread them into our lives and perhaps even into church with us, spreading the aroma of the world, the aroma of cynicism or bitterness or resentment or offense or outrage or greed or ambition. Here on a Sunday, and also on a Wednesday, we, we wash each other's feet with the word, don't we, as we come together in worship, as we praise God, we listen to his word, we remind each other of his goodness, of our mission here, of the example set for us by our Lord and teacher, 
Jesus. When we turn our minds to worship by confessing our sins and receiving again the cleansing of his forgiveness, when we take communion, we can wash each other's feet in our close friendships with our brothers or sisters in Christ as we share our burdens, our sorrows, as we help each other through difficulties, through temptations, through challenges. We don't have to carry these things by ourselves. But we can only wash each other's feet if we're willing to get close enough to get our hands dirty, to let others close enough to wash our feet. Jesus asks us to wash each other's feet, not our own. We can no more wash our own feet, that is, clean up our own mess, deal with our own stuff, then we can save ourselves. We need trust and humility. We need to be willing to be vulnerable and to handle the vulnerabilities of each other. Are we willing to wash each other's feet and to let others close enough to wash ours? This is a kind of death like Chris was talking about last week and the week before, following Jesus does require a death, and this is part of the death. Many of you do this already. Many of you do wash each other's feet. You have very close and authentic friendships with each other where you, you do bear each other's sins, and that's glorious, and can I commend you to keep going with that? But for some of you, this might be really frightening, weird, strange. Why is she saying these words? But it's the only way we can really do what Jesus is asking of us. It keeps us humble. It makes us strong. It keeps us clean. Our God is utterly holy. He's pure. He's just. He lives in unapproachable light, James tells us. And the miracle of this passage is that Jesus, knowing he's about to go back to that, he's about to go back to glory, to all that God has given him, stoops to wash the feet of his followers, to demonstrate to them and to us his great love. It's a sign of what he will go on to demonstrate by dying for them and for us. His loving faithfulness should give us the courage to die. He has gone before us and shown us that death is not the end. This kind of death is definitely not the end. But death to status and position and putting oneself first and putting up masks and pretending and trying to keep ourselves clean. Death to all of that is the doorway to an indestructible life. No servant is greater than his master. If Jesus is our Lord, then we are to follow his example and he promises that we will be blessed if we do. Amen. Amen.